If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. John wrote and said, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. (coughs) When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, <coughs> excuse me, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind." Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne." And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, as we have been studying and considering your truth in the book of Revelation, Lord, we ask you to give us grace to truly understand it correctly. Pray that you would guide us and direct us in all things. And bless us and open your word to our hearts and minds and open our hearts and minds to your word. Cleanse us, we pray, bless us and apply your word to us, Lord, so that we'll know how to serve you in our time. And we thank you, Lord, for the encouragement we receive from the scriptures and from being with our brothers and sisters in worship. And so we pray you'd bless us all now and be with us and open your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the sixth chapter is part of you know the narrative. It began in chapter 5, as we talked about it. Chapter 5 and 6 are really one section. We could say it goes a lot farther, because if you noticed, if you were paying attention, and I hope you were, um, when we read chapter 6, if you remember, there were seven seals on the scroll. Six of them are opened, so we don't have the seventh one opened yet for a while. And so this uh, sixth chapter we see in rapid succession, succession the um, 
unfolding of the scroll of destiny. Chapter 5, if you remember, no one was found worthy except the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who came forth and received the scroll. And heaven and earth praised God, the one that sits upon the throne, the Father, and praised the lamb as God incarnate, the Son of God. And so Christ is praised. Verse 12 of chapter 5, this is to help us get this all in perspective. When they cried out, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And we're going to see that prayer, that praise, or praise prayer, I guess we could call it, uh, answered throughout this book as it has been in history. And then we read in verse 13 of 5, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. So we see the victory of the Lamb he overcame. We see his praise in heaven and on earth. And as I say, verse 13 is important because what a testimony to the deity, the true uh, uh, deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God the Son with the Father and the Holy Spirit, because it would be utter blasphemy to link a creature to God the way uh, Christ the Lamb is linked here. And so we, we see, as the Scripture tells us in the various places, that God was manifested in the flesh, and the Word became flesh, the Word who was God and is God. And so we see the Lamb is praised with the one who sits upon the throne. Uh, and as a matter of fact, they're, they're worshipped together because there's only one God. The mystery of the Trinity is clearly taught in Scripture. Uh, they say, I always remind myself and others, the first point of theology, that is the study of God, is to remember God is a different sort of being than we are. And uh, that's why it's funny when you hear people say, well, how can God be three in one? That doesn't make sense. It's like, well, that's good because if it made, it does make sense, actually, but... Uh, if you're saying that God has to fit inside your noggin in order for him to be the true God, well, you're, you've got a false notion there. God's greater than anything you can conceive of. And he has revealed himself to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, ever one God. So we see this all through Revelation. And so now that John has seen this vision, the Lamb receiving the scroll from the hand of the Father, the one who sits upon the throne, and then he... Um, is praised in chapter 6, we see that it begins to be opened. And he says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Now that seems like a, just an incidental statement, but it is important because the Lamb is the one who is unfolding this. It's Jesus Christ who is opening the future for the church. Now in chapter 6, some might say, Well, when did all this happen? You know, has this been fulfilled? Is it being fulfilled? Is it going to be fulfilled? And as I sometimes answer questions that are multifaceted, the answer is yes. Because I think what we have in this chapter is the, a panoramic view of the future from the time of John until the end. Clearly, the chapter ends with the men of the earth trying to find a place to hide because as they declare... Uh, the day of his wrath, the very last verse, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Um, they, they freak out. They're terrified. This is an utter, inexpressible terror that will seize the wicked on the day of judgment because it's um, them being found with no hope, with nothing but eternal damnation looming before them, and the only one that could have helped them they had turned their backs on and scorned and as we also see from this sixth chapter they didn't just turn their backs on jesus when we see all these martyrs that are pictured in heaven and says they were killed well these wicked men are the ones that were killing them and so we see the judgment of god begin to fall so a couple things preliminary as we dive into this uh, with the prophecies of this book, we may not always be able to say, with def uh, to say definitively what the exact fulfillment was, is, or shall be. 
You know, someone says, well, that happened on, you know, the year 75 on a Thursday, or that happened in the year 1921 or something like that. Those kind of interpretations are usually proven to be false, particularly when someone uses the book of Revelation to predict, well, Jesus is coming on such and such a day in the next five years or the next three years, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen this happen. Uh, Harold Camping and Family Radio kept predicting the second advent of Jesus, and he had such a following, and so many people believed him. They ended up selling their houses or going into debt because they thought we're getting raptured out of here. And then when it didn't happen, they were financially destroyed. Um, and we've seen other, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they predicted the second coming of Jesus in 1914 when that didn't happen. Uh, they switched it and said, oh, well, we just meant he was coming and he's in heaven, not, not the second advent. If you go back and read what they were saying before 1914, they were saying he was going to come and judge the world. But then they always switched. They also said he was going to come again, I think it was 1974. And that stirred up a lot of people because, well, you know, you got to follow us. We're the only ones that know this truth. Well, 74 came and went. And so, of course, they switched gears. Prior to that, you had the, the uh, millennial movement back in the 1800s and 1848 with the later the Seventh-day Adventists, but the Adventist movement. Um, it was predicted that Jesus was going to come in, 19, excuse me, 1848, and people believed it because they, these fellows were claiming to be prophets, or these women were, some of them, uh, and they said, oh yes, he's coming, you know, and so they sold rapture outfits, and they said people climbed up on the tops of their barns wearing their rapture robes, and waited and waited because they gave them this specific day. And the sun went down, there they were on their roofs, the sun came up the next morning and they were still on their roofs. And they realized, well some of them did, that they must have gotten something wrong. Well, so of course the false prophets came and said, oh well we didn't mean he was coming again physically. I think it was Ellen G. White said, no, he just came out of the Holy of Holies in heaven into the holy place. And now he's checking in the books to see who's keeping Saturday as the Sabbath. Oh, okay, okay. So they kept the money flowing, and you know, a lot. Some people though were like, uh, "This is wrong. Something's messed up here." So we have these false prophets all the time. So when someone says it's such and such a date, take it for what what it is, right? And the the one thing to remember: Jesus will come again, and it will be on such and such a date. And the general time of that we can know because the scripture tells us that. When they say peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction on them as a woman in travail, okay, a woman when she goes into labor pains. So there will be indications. Paul, as we looked at last week, he said that day shall not take you as a thief. You know, you can, you, you can know, he told them, you can recognize this. So we may not be able to definitively say what the exact fulfillment was, is, or shall be, but we can always clearly understand much of the general application to us in whatever times we live, and that's really what we need to do. We do need to pray for understanding. Lord, is this, is this, are we reading prophecies here that have been fulfilled? We're 20 centuries away from the time that John gave, was given this revelation. So has some of this been fulfilled? Now some will say, oh, it all happened before 70 AD or at 70 AD. Book of Revelation, they say, a lot of the modern preterists, it all took place uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what it's all about. And it's like the whole testimony of the early church says that this book was written about 90 A.D. or 94 A.D. actually in the reign of Domitian. And that's, the, there's, there's not, that's like the united testimony uh, of those who were alive shortly after the time it was written, those who received it. And the book itself is pretty clearly going beyond Jerusalem. Um, as I said to one fellow, if Jerusalem was already destroyed, then what is this book saying? They really couldn't answer it because they bought into a theory and said, oh, no, it has to all be before 70 A.D. I said, what about the last chapter where you have the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment? There actually are people, they're, they're called full preterists, who say, yeah, that all was fulfilled. That's just symbolic. They say, well, so you're saying there's not going to be a physical resurrection? They go, no, no, that all happened at 70 A.D. It's like, well, you know, Paul turned two guys over to Satan for saying the resurrection was past. Okay, so you guys are just reviving a, an old damnable heresy that's refuted actually in Scripture. It's generally those who actually, you know, are not as dedicated to their theory. And there's an old saying, hell hath no fury like a zealot trying to prove a theory. Uh, they, you know, they just... 
everything's got to be consistent with their view. Most of the preterists, some who will say, oh, it was all fulfilled in 780, they'll generally admit, yeah, the last chapter has to do with the second coming or the last couple chapters and the um, final judgment and eternity. And so my response is, well, if the last two chapters are beyond 70 AD, why couldn't chapters 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, etc., why couldn't those also be future? Because it seems to me this book was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's pretty clear in the way it's been understood and the way I think it does open up if we take it as this is written around 90 AD, and it's to comfort the saints, the early church, the development of the churches that we see in the first uh, three chapters when the seven churches are addressed are clearly not pre-70 AD. Those are churches in second or third generation where you've got people that, where the gospel had been preached there for some, in some 40 or 50 years. So we can always understand the application. That is, this means something to us. God gave us his word. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 15 and 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, meaning thoroughly equipped, uh, perfectly fitted for every good work. So this is scripture. So we can definitely do, you know, learn from it, even though we might say, I'm not sure when, this, when or how this was fulfilled or is going to be. But it does tell me things that, that help me understand how I should be living my life. The application of the prophecies are always current, though the specific fulfillment may at times elude us. If you look at the prophecy in Isaiah 7 about the virgin birth of Christ, in the days of King Ahab, we've been studying about him on Tuesday nights, 6 p.m., uh, if you want to come, and he was given a prophecy. The prophecy was, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And uh, shall call his name, they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew tells us, which is God with us. Uh, you know, Ahab was worried that the two northern confederation, that the Syrians and others are going to come and dethrone him. And he was told, no, this one is coming, the Messiah, the, you'll be virgin, virgin conceived. And before the child can know good from evil, that is when he grows to maturity or begins to grow, those two kings that you fear, they're going to be long gone off the earth. Okay, so that was fulfilled seven centuries afterwards when Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We have the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament to tell us that was the fulfillment of that. But it had immediate application to King Ahab and his generation. This is a, a help with prophecy, I think. It meant something to him. And what it meant was, quit freaking out. God is in control. These guys that are up there, they're not going to be able to destroy uh, the kingdom. As a matter of fact, I got the king wrong, okay? It was the, in southern Judah was that prophecy given, and I apologize. Um, they were told the house of David is not going to be destroyed before Messiah comes. It won't be destroyed then either. But the D Davidic dynasty is going to remain intact, so you don't need to be worrying, okay? And those two kings you're worried about right now are going to be long gone. That was the immediate application. Then it was fulfilled, and now we look back at it, and the, and the application for us is that God is faithful to his word. We see this. Our Savior was virgin conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's, you know, all through the Gospels we read this. Uh, and he entered humanity in a unique way. There's all types of theological and practical implications from it. But we see our God can do wonders and miracles. And our Lord Jesus Christ is true man, but unique. And that means when we're struggling, like it says, we don't have a... a high priest who cannot be moved with the feelings of our infirmities, our struggles, our weaknesses, whether spiritual, emotional, or physical, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So there's application for us when we see, you know, go back and read Isaiah 7, we can go, wow, praise God, that means something to me. My God is God. He can do whatever he wants to. And my Lord Jesus Christ is true man, but he's also the Son of God, and he entered humanity in a unique way. So when we're reading these, there's application to be made. So if someone says, well, what exactly, when was that fulfilled? One of the most liberating things that happened to me after I left the dispensationalist camp, you know, the Schofield Bible folks, somebody asked me a question about how I understood a certain prophecy, 
Because in the dispensationalist camp, you've got to have everything lined up. You've got to know everything. You've got to have all those problems. You've got your charts. You have to have them memorized. You know, if you've ever seen the Clarence Larkin charts. Um, everything, boom, 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 boom. I had a fellow tell me that he figured out Jesus was coming back on a Thursday late in the afternoon. <laughs> and uh, I said, how do you know that? Well, if you take this verse and part of this verse and you tie it to this one here and then you tie it to over here and you look at this and you see this and you understand how the feast worked and I don't think you really know what you're talking about, but he had it down. Somebody asked me a question about prophecy after I left that camp. And I was just, because I, I said, when I first read the Bible, it looked to me like Jesus was going to come again on the last day of history. And it was going to be a resurrection and a judgment day, and then eternity was going to start, and people would either be in heaven or in hell. And somebody asked me, well, what do you, how do you understand that? And it was liberating because I was able to say, and I'm not boasting in ignorance, but I was able to say, I don't know. I'm not sure how that's going to be fulfilled. And that was the first time in a long time I'd been able to say that. <laughs> okay, and it's like, I guess it's okay, but, I, you know, because we don't know everything, but we know the one who does know everything, and we can trust him. And that's what this chapter's about. We're going to get into the chapter in just a moment. So I wanted to lay this out about how we understand prophecy. We can understand the fulfillment. Some, you know, these some of these symbols are pretty thinly veiled, and you can understand what's going on behind him. So as we look here, let's, let's go through the chapter a bit and see what we can gain from this, because there's some wonderful stuff here. So the, the lamb opens the first seal. The four living creatures, the first one, we'll find the first four seals, the four living beings that are before the throne of God that we read about. They're praising God night and day without stop, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. John hears them speak with a one of this one speak with a voice like thunder. Come and see. Those are imperatives. It's a command. Come and take a look. He says, and I looked, and behold, love in the in the Greek it's kai edan kai edu. Okay, and I saw, and behold, edan kai edu, a white horse. Now this white horse shows up in chapter nineteen when Christ returns, and we see him coming to tread the wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of God. So I believe this is a picture of Christ. Uh, I saw, behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So this writer goes forth in in Psalm 45, because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, in Psalm 45, if you want to turn there. At verse 3, we begin reading. Well, I start at the first verse. Uh, he says, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. He's talking about Jesus. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously. Because of truth, humility, and righteous. It's talking about the incarnate Savior, you know, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And then verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So you see the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit addresses this one who is doing the will of God as God. This is quoted in the book of Hebrews for an evidence of the deity of Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now note how we see the persons of the Trinity in this. The Son is addressed, I believe, in verse 6. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Wait a minute. You just called him God. Now you're saying he has it. Yeah, that's the way it is because the Son his God is God, is the Father. And as to Jesus being a man, he worshiped God. But therefore God, your God, has anointed you, that's the word for Messiah there, anointed, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Um, so it goes on and really is a beautiful picture of the redemption and of the church. So we see this one goes forth, and he goes forth gloriously. In chapter 19 of Revelation, I mentioned it a moment ago, in chapter 19 at verse 11 we read, uh, John now says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. So he says, this white horse reappears. 
and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John identified him in his gospel as the Word, Lagos to Halagos to Theu. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. This shows up in chapter 6 also. White and clean followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. Now some say, well, is this Jesus when he comes again? Jesus isn't coming on a horse when he returns. I think the better commentators in the text itself, this is a picture of Christ going forth, conquering the nations via the Great Commission. The ones who are with him are those who are his church, and the word goes out, because you notice this isn't the final judgment right here. This is him, when it says he's, he's dealing with the nations, what does he do? He brings them under judgment. He strikes the nations. Remember when the opening chapters, he promised uh, those who, he who overcomes shall sit with me on uh, my, my father, or with me on my throne, and you know, my father's throne. And he said, you'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. Also, we've read here just in chapter 5, he's made us kings and priests. So those who are with him are faithful and called. So it says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. This isn't heaven. This is a picture of this present earth. And some say, well, but what, what about sweet Jesus, meek and mild, who never does anyone any harm? This is Jesus in the Bible. This is the, the Son of God who judges those who spit upon God's mercy and turn their backs on him and mock him. Christ is King of kings. God will not be mocked. If you want to know Jesus, you need to read your Bible and find out who he really is. He's not a plastic idol sitting on a dashboard for some people. And he's not, for some folks, that little idol's not on their dashboard. It's just in their heart and mind. I had a lady one time, we were talking about the sovereignty of God and the judgment of God. And I've quoted this before, shared it with you. And she looked at me and said, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. And I said, well, the real one does do that. My uh, theology professor, Dr. Rudolph, struggled with the sovereignty of God as a young man. And I think I've shared with you also in time past that he said one day his father, who was professor of theology at the uh, Reformed Episcopal Seminary before Dr. Rudolph took that chair later, but his father was aware of his struggle, and his father finally told him, he said, son, it's time you came to grips with the God who is, not the one that you would like to exist. And he said that really struck him in his heart. And he realized, yeah, I'm basically insisting that God has to be the God I want. Not So he started reading the Bible and trying to, you know, Lord, how, what kind of a God are you? And it revolutionized his life. And he was a faithful teacher for 50 years at the seminary. And I thank God for him because he took God's word seriously. And that's what we need to do. That's the application here. So he himself, it says, he will rule them with the rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a message that needs to be preached in our generation. We've got all these little potentates that think they can decree the death of millions of babies and they can oppress God's people and they can pass laws restricting the propagation of the gospel or try to control family or introduce uh, immorality in kindergartens through filthy books and everything else. And just, we look at all this stuff. What is going on? Well, they're going to find out that Jesus Christ does rule the nations with the rod of iron. And that's what this chapter, chapter 6, is about. Chapter 19, we see this one on a white horse. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And it goes on. So we find the great battle of, of Armageddon takes place here. And um, then we find the beast and the false prophet are destroyed. Many believe that that is a picture of the gospel going forth and perhaps a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. But the point is, is that this one that goes forth on a white horse and that's introduced when the first seal is broken, it's pretty awesome. It says, he who sat on it had a bone, a crown was given to him. That word is the word Stephanos we've talked about before. It means a victor's crown. Um, was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So this is a picture, this is a symbol of the word going forth. He went out conquering 
And literally, and in order to conquer. He went out to subjugate the nations. Well, what happens when the gospel is rejected? Well, the next seal gets opened. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. The first, you know, uh, was mercy. The second one, we begin to see judgment. And the third and the fourth. When the Lord spoke through Moses, he told the children of Israel, When you come to a city, not the ones that were already under the ban in Canaan, but if you fight or war against a city outside of the promised land, when you first come to it, you're to offer terms of peace. And if they don't accept those, then you go to war. And we see that principle at work here. So he says, the first one that goes forth on a white horse, and he has a bow, obviously a bow with arrows, as we saw in Psalm 45, conquering and to conquer. And some have said, well, those arrows, you know, that, that in the hands of a mighty man, you know, the quiver full, uh, that say, well, what are the arrows? You you're the arrows in the Lord's quiver when you go forth and you are faithful in your vocation and in your home and in your family. When you speak as you have opportunity to others about the gospel, those are the arrows that cause the men to change, all right? Um, it's like, you know, we say, well, aren't arrows deadly? Well, so is a two-edged sword. But a two-edged sword is the word of God, and it brings life. Sometimes it cuts and kills. Sometimes it cuts and separates the dead from the living. So here we see this, this fiery red horse. It's a scary picture. He went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Now we're going to see some of those that were being killed were Christians, because we see the martyrs in the next uh, few verses. So he's given the authority or the power to take peace from the earth. They're no longer debating. Now they're starting to kill. We're seeing this transition happen in our own culture. You know, we see more and more violence. We used to, you know, the idea that there'd be rioting because somebody got elected, somebody didn't like. When did that start? That surely didn't start, you know, years ago. That's a recent development. It's like, are people losing their reasoning? Yes. You take the Bible out of your education system, and that's what happens eventually. because People don't know how to think. And we see this. And so here... This one goes forth, and he takes peace from the earth. So with the, you know, the white horse goes forth, and now you have following a judgment takes place. And people lose their reason. They like say they're no longer discussing differences. They're just killing each other over it. Uh, verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands, a pair of balances. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, so a voice comes forth and speaks and says, uh, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. That's generally the, uh, from historical records and things doing research, that's generally the amount of food that was given to a slave for a day. They could make bread, they could feed, if they had a family, they could feed it. So this is not an abundance, this is scarcity. And a denarius was a day's wage. So this is a high price for very little. What do we see? You know, people say, well, we see groceries going up. Well, we still have groceries. Here we see things are getting really scarce, where wheat and barley are being rationed, you might say. And then it says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Some have said, well, those were maybe for those that had more money. The Greek word where it says do not harm, it actually comes from the, the uh, root idea of don't do injustice in regard to oil and wine, saying, you know, don't price gouge. But we see there's a scarcity starting to happen. And some of this is generally reckoned to be famine, although famine comes up in the next one also. So food is now becoming scarce. So you have first the white horse goes forth, and then you have the judgment of war, basically, is what we're seeing in the second one. Now the third one, what follows with war, is scarcity. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the, fourth, the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. The word pale there is sickly green in the original. Okay? It means pale, but the, the word, it, it's, it's not a pretty-looking horse. Okay? It's green, and greenish. Um, and pale is, it's a pale green, so it's pretty sick-looking. 
Um, so a pale horse came, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over, that is, for death and hell, or Hades. Power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. So things are bad. A further judgment. You notice how these judgments are more and more intense. So now it just, a note to, to die with a sword, with hunger, to starve to death. When it says with death, that's generally understood to mean pestilence of some sort. And by the beast of the earth. So the wild animals begin taking over. They're not being restrained. In Ezekiel chapter 14, we find a parallel passage, or at least the, the idea is um, it complements what we're reading and gives us some insight. Ezekiel chapter 14, if you'd like to turn there with me. Uh, beginning at verse 12, Ezekiel speaks and says, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Now Ezekiel's writing to a generation that was under judgment. Judah had been destroyed. The southern kingdom had been taken over by the Babylonians. The people were not exterminated, but they were carried away to Babylon, where they stayed for 70 years because of their idolatry and their wickedness and their refusal to honor God. And so he's speaking to a generation that understood the idea of judgment. So the word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when, the land, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness. Could make some application there, couldn't we? I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, sin, famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. And the beast there means domestic beast. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. Now, Noah was before the flood and after the flood. Daniel was alive during Ezekiel's time. And Job, the book of Job, is probably one of the oldest books written. So the stories were well known of these righteous men. But God says they would only deliver themselves. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beast, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on the land, see we're seeing these same judgments described in Revelation, and say, sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it. Even though these, these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send pestilence into that land, those are diseases, plagues, viruses, bacterial infections, whatever it is, pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. Note the singular there. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beast and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. On the final judgment, when everyone's ways and doings are manifested, no one's going to question God's judgment. So he says, you're going to see their, their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. So Jerusalem had not yet been completely taken over, but he's telling you it's going to happen. But you see those four judgments, and that's what we're dealing with here. And so he opens the uh, seals, and we see these judgments coming forth. But then we have a completely different 
picture, kind of, because we're no longer seeing judgments on the earth, but we, we get a picture back into heaven. Verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, this is a very interesting picture. I remember when I first read it, I thought, under the altar, you know, you got the altar, you got a little space, their soul. What's the picture here? I, don't, I couldn't get it for a long time. And I prayed and kept reading, read commentaries, and then went back and read the text. So he sees those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They're under the altar. And they cried out. We'll get back to that. But they cried out with a loud voice. Now note this. These are the people that had been killed, had been violently, brutally, unjustly murdered for no other reason than that they loved Jesus and were trying to let people know that there was hope. You know, the murder of Christians by persecution is, is absolutely heinous. Uh, what they did was so wrong. You know, the, you look at what they did to our Lord Jesus Christ, and the only thing that we can say, uh, as the, uh, is said in the book of Acts, that the Lord Jesus, he went about doing good, and yet they hated him. And when Christians do what is right before God and speak the truth in love, they're hated, and to the point where they're killed. And so here we see this. But note when they, they speak to God. These are the ones in heaven. Their souls are in heaven. They don't accuse God. They don't say, oh, you're so unjust. I, oh, I, my, you were so mean to me. And I, I had to suffer. Oh, 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 God is so unjust. They don't do that. Their hearts are right with God. They're in heaven. Note how they address God. How long, O oh Lord, holy and true. They love the Lord. They knew what had been done to them was unjust, but they knew that injustice lays at the feet of men. They didn't blame God. They were just looking. Remember Job? What did the devil say to God? He said, let me have him. I'll make him curse you. To, I'll have him curse you to your face. The Lord said, go ahead. <laughs> but you're not going to be able to do it because Job was given a supply of grace. Here we see the saints in glory. They don't judge or speak ill of God. They don't rail or blaspheme or cry out. Uh, against him they say oh how long oh lord holy they long for justice they want to see god glorified they want to see things made right they know they were taken out of the world unjustly you know i believe you know we talked about it and you know it, it's it's a pertinent issue you know the little souls that are sent to heaven we trust that the lord receives them that are murdered violently brutally by ab abortion murder those little ones are very well, perhaps, pictured here. Okay? And they're crying out to God. God hears them. You know, when, when, when we leave this life, when our spirit leaves our body, we're perfected. It talks about that in, in the book of Hebrews. The spirits of just men made perfect are before God. When those little ones leave this life, they're perfected. That means they're matured. They're given knowledge. Them, along with the other martyrs who have died, you know, more Christians died in the 20th century, that's the last complete one we've got, uh, than ever died before in church history. The slaughter of Christians is not let, let up. But they cry out to God, and they recognize, that, Lord, you're just, you're holy, you're true. God is good. They see that. They acknowledge it. That's what we need to do. There's an application for us. They said, how long, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They're asking for justice. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. They're asking God, Lord, do, do what you've said. Judge those who have slaughtered us. Judge those who took away our life. Judge those who removed us from the earth when they shouldn't have done that. And then we're told, then a white, a white robe was given to each of them. Picture of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it was said to them, Remember later we read they're with Jesus on, when he comes in the white horse and they're clothed in white robes. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. So they're in rest. They're not in torment. They cry out. They desire to see justice done. But they're at peace. That they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So they said there's, there's more going to join you. There's going, and this is important for us to recognize. It doesn't say, oh, well, God's just going to put a stop to all martyrdom. It says, no, there's going to be more join you. So be at peace, but recognize the full number has not yet been brought in. 
And so they're told to rest. Then we go on. I looked, I looked when he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake. So their prayer is being answered, by the way, in these next verses. You know, they want to know how long. Well, we find out it began immediately. And when the sixth seal, when Christ opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. There was a great upsetting, upsetting of all things. And the sun became black, excuse me, yes, the sun became black as sackcloth. Some have said it's the picture of the fires of destruction when cities are destroyed. If you remember back when the oil fields were on fire in Kuwait, it was nighttime. You know, the sun became black. You couldn't see it, but you could see through the smoke. And if you saw the moon, just as it says here, the moon became like blood. These are descriptions given also in the Old Testament at times concerning uh, the destruction of cities. And so uh, if it's a picture of destruction falling out, uh, then it's pretty pretty clear. It could be something else, but it definitely the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Now, obviously, the stars don't fall on the earth literally or physically. This is a symbol. The idea of the, you know, in the old days, you were guided by the stars. If they're gone, you don't know, can't find your direction, at least in the darkness. And now it's dark all the time, according to this. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This seems to be a picture of the last judgment, definitely moving in that direction. But then we read in verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, all of them, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. These who were powerful are no longer boasting. These who uh, were kings and rich men and commanders, they're no longer persecuting Christians. You know the interesting thing here when we, when we look at this? In the fifth seal, what do we see? We see the saints under the altar. Why is that important? The altar is where the blood was applied. The saints are under the blood of Jesus Christ. They're covered. They're not afraid of the wrath of God. They love the Lord. They know he loves them. They're at peace. They're at rest. They're given white robes. They're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The wicked, however powerful and mighty they may have been in life, they have no covering when Christ returns. They're absolutely struck with an eternal terror. And it's just beginning for them. It's not going to get better. They have no covering. They turned their backs on the offer when the gospel went forth. They persecuted God's people. They killed them. They sentenced uh, men, women, and children to death. Those saints cried out to God for justice, and we see now it's being fulfilled. I believe chapter 6 is a picture from John's time till the end. So these wicked men who have no covering, they want the mountains to crush them to death. They want to be buried under the mountains because they do not want to be in the presence of God. Note this. As one man said, you know, for the, for the wicked to be in hell, and it says in Revelation, they're tortured in the presence of God and of the Lamb for all eternity. <coughs> for the wicked to be in torment, all they have to be is in the presence of God. Because they're, they hate him. And God hates them. And you say, well, God doesn't hate anybody. Yes, he does. It says God, he hates the wicked. He's angry with them every day. If you don't think God hates the wicked, you haven't read to the end of the Bible yet. The wicked will be punished. Why does God hate the wicked? Because he's a just God. That's why, because of their wickedness. We say, well, this is horrible. What, what can we do? Jesus is offered to men on the basis of them being sinners. Say, well, what about all this Calvinism elect stuff? I don't understand that, how that works with evangelism. You go to people and tell them, Jesus died for sinners. If you see yourself as such, and you should, you can call on him. You can trust him. We don't offer Jesus to people on the basis of them being elect. We don't know who the elect are. We're, we're told, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We preach it indiscriminately. We leave the results up to God. We know ultimately only the elect are going to be saved. That's, in, that's you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. 
and we leave that in his hands. But those things that are revealed, it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we might obey or do all the words of this law forever, or they belong to us forever. And so the gospel is offered. When it's rejected, you see judgment after judgment after judgment, and finally eternity. They cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on us. And from the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world for sinners, their relationship with him, and they do have a relationship with him, it is one of wrath. <coughs> All men have a relationship with God, by the way. Okay, And it's either one of mercy or one of wrath. But they cry out, hide us. They want to be hidden from uh, from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? A Christian ought to be able to answer that. Say, well, those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they alone. Isaiah 45, 22, God spoke and said, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. God invites men, look unto me. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, really in verse 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So as we look to him, we have hope. So what do we learn from this? That Christ will be and is victorious. Judgment follows judgment where no repentance is found. This is true of individuals and of nations and of history. Thirdly, we find the saints always trust God when they cry out, How long, O Lord? They, they long for justice. They go to God. How long, O Lord? Holy and true. They love the Lord. They ascribe glory to God even when they're puzzled, when their hearts are broken over the injustice that they and others have experienced. They still trust God and they still praise him. They proclaim him holy and true. We need to learn from that. Finally, we also learned that the wicked have nowhere to hide from the wrath of God and from the Lamb if they despise the day of mercy. So let's make sure we don't do that. Call upon the Lord, trust in him. You know, we opened up with a psalm, talked about calling on the name of the Lord. May God give us grace to do so. So we can learn some things from chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. I hope the Holy Spirit will apply it to your heart and encourage you this day. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless us as we uh, thank you for your word. We pray you'd apply it to our hearts. Lord, I thank you that you're in control of history. Lord Jesus, we thank you that those seals, as they were opened, they were opened by your gracious nail-pierced hand. And Lord, we praise your name and we thank you. And Lord, with your saints and the martyrs in heaven, we, we do cry out and say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge the blood, the innocent blood that's been shed uh, not just in this land, but throughout history. We thank you, Lord, that you are avenging it. You do rule the nations with a rod of iron. Lord, we're sensible that our own nation in many ways is, has come and is coming under further judgments. So we ask you to grant to each one of us individually true repentance from our sins. Help us, Lord, to serve you with both feet and not to halt between two opinions. Lord, we acknowledge you are God and there is none other. We do look to you, Lord Jesus Christ, as the author and finisher of our faith. Give us grace so that when you return in glory, Lord, we can be, we can be glad and rejoice and have that joy everlasting in our hearts and not be afraid. And finally, Lord, we do pray you give us grace to speak up to others and tell them there is hope in Jesus Christ. But that day of hope has a, has a limit. There is a time when it will no longer be a day of hope, but a day of wrath. So, Lord, give us grace to speak up, for we ask your mercies to be upon us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.